My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Will you pray with me? Father, oh, thank you that you are wise and we are not. We don't have to try to puff up ourselves or finagle our mind around to understand different things, but you are the one who reveals yourself to us. You're the one who calls us to yourself, and you are the one who changes us to reflect you. Thank you for being our God and giving us the ability to worship you. Today, Father, I ask that you would open up our minds, that we would understand your word, and remember all the amazing things you've done for us. Lord, as I'm up here, I ask that I would decrease and that you would increase. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Thanks, Father. Amen. Paul says that he does not want to empty the cross of its power, so he came to the Corinthians in weakness. Because the message of the cross is weakness to all of humanity compared to what the world thinks. In this passage, we have a debate between, the hum- between humanity and God. And it's not a simple debate. Eternity stands in the balance depending on which side of the debate you fall. Not only is it not a simple debate, but it is not a quick debate either. It's a cosmic one. It's been a debate that's been happening since God created the world, and it will happen until he comes again. Humanity steps up and declares that they know what is right, that they know what is good, and they have wisdom and power, and God looks at humanity and says, nope, not true. So here we have it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we have human folly versus divine power. Which is going to win? We are all good Christians, most of us, and we would stand up and say that, oh yeah, God wins. That's the good Sunday school answer. But often we don't live like we know the answer. So often we try to imitate the Corinthians. We try to live our lives on the basis of unsanctified common sense, which has self-preservation as its ultimate goal. That kind of life is self-seeking, self-serving, and ultimately self-destructive. So who do, you really, who do we really want to win? Do we want our ability to live according to what we think is right? Do we want that to win? Or do we want God's ability to direct us into a life that everyone else thinks is foolish and weak? Where do we really land on this cosmic debate? The debate is set. Instead of normal debate where you have two speakers on either side, the one for and the one against, In Corinthians, this letter, Paul gives us five speakers on the human side and one speaker on the divine side. First up on the human side is the possessor of secret knowledge. The possessor of secret knowledge. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18 to 20, he says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Paul asks, where is the wise person? Let him stand up and give a defense for what he thinks. The Greek society loved wisdom. 
they had multiple gods, but they ultimately worshipped wisdom. And there was a group of people that were starting to meet together in the Greek society. In, in about 50 to 100 years, they're going to have a name placed on them called the Gnostics. And they're starting to meet together now and discuss what is true wisdom. They believe that there was such a thing as secret knowledge. I kind of believe that they're the forerunners of today's conspiracy theorists. They believed that there is hidden truth to be found and only certain people can find it. This hidden truth would allow them to know God in a way that no one else could know and ultimately allow them to, stand, to, to shed the confines of this evil physical life and body and attain spiritual reality. That's what they believed, the Gnostics. They denied the ability of the cross to save because more had to be added to it. It was too simple. They wanted more. They wanted more searching, more conspiracy, more things for them to do. They weren't content. They wanted a better way than everyone else. They wanted a secret key that no one else knew because that would exalt them up. People today who dive into hidden meanings in the Bible or who follow such things as the Da Vinci Code and other such things fall into this category of the Gnostics. But what did God say? God said that he made foolish the wisdom of the world. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 21, he says, For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what is preached to save those who believe. Possessors of secret knowledge, those people who try to sift through what is known and find what is unknown, cannot know God because God works through clear revelation, not hidden secrets. Why? Consider what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 to 10. Ephesians 1, verses 9 to 10. Paul says, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. People who keep searching for hidden knowledge pass over the truth which God has clearly revealed. He is a God that wants to be known, and so he has made himself known. People who search for hidden pride, uh, hidden knowledge want to boost their pride because they want to know what others don't. But scripture tells us that God opposes the proud and shows favor to the humble. The possessors of secret knowledge say that the cross is foolishness because it doesn't give them what they think they want. Debater number two stands up. This is the one who studies revealed knowledge. Revealed knowledge. Paul says, where is the teacher of the law? Other scribes say, where is the, other translations say, where is the scribes? Or where are the experts in Mosaic law? Depending on the translation, that's what it says. But it all means the same thing. This is the person who has spent their life studying scripture. They're not looking for secret knowledge, but they want to have a clear, undeniable, unmuddied knowledge of the word of God. You say, that sounds great. Yes, it does. This is the person that Herod called when the wise men came to Jerusalem and they said, where are the king of the Jews? And Herod called the scribes, the teachers of the law. And they came and said, Jesus is in Bethlehem. They knew their scripture. <laughs> They're also the people who handed Jesus over to be killed. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. Matthew 16, 21, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, the scribes, and that he must be killed on the third day to be raised again. And we see them in Matthew 27, standing before Jesus, hanging on the cross, mocking him. 
They were those who knew where the Messiah would come. They knew what the Messiah would do. But when the Messiah came, they refused to follow him because he demanded that they do something they were not willing to do, have the humility to follow him instead of their own reason. It's interesting how someone can be so knowledgeable in the word of God and yet be so far from the word of God. One of the best commentators on the book of John was in Germany in 1941. Everyone, no matter what side of the theological circle you were on, say that this guy wrote the most accurate when it comes to the words and the grammar on the book of John that anyone has ever written. His name was Rudolf Boltmann. And he was not a Christian. He did not believe in the inspiration of Scripture. He did not believe in the historical accuracy of Scripture. He did not really believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he wrote the most accurate commentary on the book of John ever. He was caught up in his own reason rather than humbly following God. Just because someone has a great knowledge of revealed truth of Scripture does not mean that that person has a relationship with Jesus Christ. Those who teach the Word of God have a great danger because in studying the Word of God, we can so easily forget God. And what worth is that, truly? God says these people's wisdom is foolishness because they cannot know God through their reason, even though they know backwards and forwards the Word of God. They're still depending on their reason, not in the, the death of Jesus Christ. Those who study revealed knowledge say that the cross is foolishness because it doesn't make sense to their mind. Debater number three steps forward. This is the one who defends knowledge. Paul calls him the philosopher of this age the philosopher of this age. He looks at the world and has a strong belief in the ability to make sense out of anything. Nothing is a mystery. Everything can be explained. And he is able to stand toe-to-toe in front of anyone and defend his position. This is who he is. The wise person searched for truth among hidden things. The scribe searched for truth among what is written on paper. And the debater searches for truth through what can be argued and proven. And unfortunately... Being adept at knowledge and debate does not equal knowing God because God has made foolish the wisdom of the world and through the wisdom of the world, God cannot be known. The debater doesn't seek to know God through his debate, he just seeks to be right because to know God, he would have to admit and declare that he is wrong completely, including his reasoning and his ability to reason. Everything is flawed And he would have to admit that, but he doesn't want to. Those who defend knowledge say the cross is foolishness because it doesn't stand up to the exaltation of human reasoning and argument. To pick up speed, number four steps up. This one looks for power. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 21 to 23. 1 Corinthians 1, 21 to 23. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs, and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. The Jews demand signs, Paul says. Throughout Jesus' ministry, the Jews were always continually demanding signs. Show us a miracle, Jesus. Do this. Do that. They were obsessed with power. But can you blame them? They had been controlled by another nation for generations, 
And they yearned for a Messiah who would use his power to do what they could not do, to do what they wanted him to do. They wanted to live in freedom, so they looked for him to come and lead them in a political revolution to show them power. But as we know, Jesus didn't come to do what the Jews wanted him to do. He came to die. So those who seek power say, why in the world would you want to follow someone who died? Even today, there are many people who only follow Jesus so that, they will do, so that he will do what they want him to do, to be the divine vending machine, if you will. But God calls us to follow him in weakness, not in power. To, not to follow him for what he can do to make our lives easier, but what, what he can do to glorify himself through them. Those who look for power dismiss the message of the cross because it is weakness, a stumbling block. Ultimately, it takes power away from us. The final debater is the one who seeks mastery. Paul said, the Greeks look for wisdom. As I said, the Greeks, they worshipped wisdom. They were continually looking for someone who had all the answers, who could put all the skeptics in their place. Think about Athens. When Paul went to Athens, yes, there were all those gods that were there, but the people meant daily, continually, not in the temple, not in the synagogue, not in the church, but in a place where philosophers would debate because they were continually searching for wisdom. We read about the writers of Greeks, even today, people called Homer, Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, because they were able to stand up and, and declare things that no one ever heard of before and make proofs that no one had ever thought of before. Someone who was wise gained a following and power and money. And then someone who followed the person who was wise gained that same status, power, money. We actually have paintings of people who were followers of Aristotle, Socrates, and Plato. Not paintings of the the actual people, but paintings of the followers of the people because the followers gained the same status. But then we have Jesus, who gained none of those things. Jesus died, and his followers were scattered, were poor, were killed. Where is the wisdom in that? It is foolishness. His followers say that Jesus rose again, but where is the wisdom in that? Because when he came back to life, he did nothing to increase his status. Nothing. So those who seek mastery consider the cross of Jesus foolishness because it does nothing for their status. Those are the five debaters on the human side. Humanity declares that the cross of Jesus is foolishness. It does not bring wisdom. It does not bring power. And humanity says, if this is all that God offers, they can do better and know better and be better on their own. God, goodbye. And in answer to those five human debaters, God steps up and he presents two pictures in this passage. Two pictures. First, he speaks of foolishness. He speaks of foolishness. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 23 to 25. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Let's be honest. The gospel is foolish, if you really think about it. A man lived 2,000 years ago, and he died. And anyone who follows this man 
is guaranteed to follow him in hardship. That's what he says. Who wants to follow that? Not only did he die, but he claimed to be God, so God died. But before he died, he was born of a virgin, and we celebrate his death by eating his body and drinking his blood. Anyone who is a follower of him is declared to be literally brothers and sisters, and the Christians say you can only marry people who are followers of him, so they're demanding that you marry your brother and sister. just weird. God designed his salvation to be such that humanity would have to leave their wisdom behind. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve declared that they wanted to be like God, to know right from wrong. This is a statement of power. They declared by eating the fruit that their own wisdom was better than God's because God told them not to do it. And they said, we are we are wiser than you are, God, and we're going to eat it. So God designed a salvation which de- denied humanity of their wisdom. We cannot trust in our wisdom. We cannot trust in our secrets. We cannot trust in our debate. We cannot trust in our intellect. We cannot trust in our arguments. We have to leave everything behind and follow solely what God said, even when it flies in the face of everything that we thought was right, everything that culture tells us. We're called to follow him alone. Even people today consider God foolish. There are a lot of quote-unquote Christian belief systems that are not based upon the word of God, but are based upon what a human wrote. Granted, these belief systems claim that this human was given a new revelation by God, or, or this human is speaking in the role of God right now, but is still human wisdom compared to God's. Lots of times they'll say, yes, you can read scripture, but make sure you also read our writing along with it because you need our writing in order to understand this. I have a shelf in my office with all lots of different human additions to the Bible that I like to look at from time to time just to understand what other people are thinking. Most of the time, humanity is trying to water down or add to the depth and simplicity of the gospel. But they're still exalting their own wisdom instead of accepting the foolishness of God. There are some preachers who take the Bible and they stand up here and they claim to only teach the Bible, but then they come to passages that they don't like or passages that disregard their own theology and then they start to redefine words and change sentence structures, or just skip over that passage because it doesn't line up with their own thinking. Their wisdom against God's. God in his wisdom or his foolishness, if you will, declared that his salvation would not be based upon human reason or wisdom or common sense, but upon Christ crucified, an acknowledgement that God is all that we need. So God speaks of foolishness, then he speaks of weakness. The gospel is all about weakness. Adam and Eve, as we said, they wanted to be like God. There was a state of power that they wanted to have. So they ate the fruit and God kicked them out of the Garden of Eden. In, in Babel, a couple generations later, people got together and said, we want, to er- we want to work our way up to heaven. We want to grasp God because we're tired of being separated for him, from him. So they gathered the resources, built this tower in order to 
earn for themselves what they could not earn. They wanted to grasp a power that they did not have, and God scattered them. Think about the Jewish faith. The Jews thought that if they kept all the laws of Moses, in addition to all the others that humans decide to put on them, that they would have the power to change the decision of a holy God. Instead of waiting for a Messiah, they said, I will do this, 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 and it is enough. But the gospel is about weakness. Christ willingly gave himself up to die the most miserable death possible. Weakness. And that situation of Christ hanging on the cross in weakness, it was so beyond the imagination of that time. Because the cross is not a symbol of strength. The cross is a symbol of weakness. It is a symbol of shame. And for centuries, the early church would not use the cross as a symbol of their faith because of the shame and weakness that came along with it. They wanted to distance themselves from the cross. They wanted to keep it hidden. But Christ, crucified, calls all of his followers to take up their cross to take up their shame, their weakness, their suffering, and follow him to glory. He calls all of humanity in his foolishness and weakness to admit that they are nothing, that they are powerless to change their state of sin, that they are powerless to change their desires and their temptations, that they are powerless to do anything. Today, there are quote-unquote Christian denominations that have taken the weakness of the gospel and added power to humanity, declaring that there are things that we can do to earn our salvation, that there are things we can do to make God happy with us. And so many people follow these systems because it feels good to be able to do something. It is empowering, but unfortunately, it is damning. All the while, Jesus is standing in the corner begging us to leave Adam and Eve behind and live in foolishness and weakness because only there does the power and wisdom of God shine through. Through the cross, God takes everything that humanity says is right and good and noble and what should be followed and he turns it upside down and says, follow me. Through the cross, we understand that the message of self-denial, that obedience to God Yes, it may lead to humiliation, it may lead to death, but ultimately does not lead to self-destruction, but to preservation and glory. So who wins in this cosmic debate? Does God win or does man win? If humans were the judges, if we went outside and just laid everything out and said, okay, make your decision, they would say, "Mm, not God, he lost, because We in ourselves do not want to give up wisdom. We don't want to give up power. We don't want to declare that we are wrong and that we need something else because we are not good enough. So they say, God, we don't want you. We don't want your convoluted system. But in the end, those who declare their own wisdom, their own power will ultimately lose. As we know, that is the teaching of Scripture. God in his foolishness and weakness is wiser and stronger than we will ever be. And so many of us have declared that, yes, we renounce it all and we follow Jesus Christ in him alone, in weakness and in foolishness, to know Christ and him crucified alone. And today, in communion, 
we get to celebrate the foolishness and weakness of the cross and what he did for us. There are other people who are here today, maybe, that you've been to church all your life and you've never decided to leave it all behind and trust in Jesus for your salvation. You've gone to church, you've prayed, you've read your Bible now and then, you've done this, you've done that, you've done everything, quote unquote, a good Christian should do, but you've never made the decision for yourself to leave it all behind and trust Jesus, to declare that you are nothing and that Jesus is everything. And if that is you today, I ask you, do not let today go by without turning to him in faith. And if you need help, want to know what more to do that, grab my hand, grab someone's hand, meal can wait, and let's make it right so that you can follow Jesus too. Today, as we celebrate communion, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. So if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you're welcome to take the gifts with us. With, with us. But if you've not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, we ask that you let the elements go by. We're not saying this to shame you. We're saying this so that you will not be a hypocrite. But because when you take this, you are declaring to everyone around you that you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ when you have not. So don't be a hypocrite. Let it go by. But today, make the decision for him. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. He's talking about those who have never placed their faith in Jesus Christ. They do not know him in these elements. So if you've not done so, please today do so. May communion be your first act or let them pass. We do not believe that these elements have anything special in them. They do not become the body of Christ or the blood of Christ. They're just elements that represent what he has done for us. We eat them to remember. Nothing special happens. They don't save you. They don't make you more holy. They're just something we do because God in his wisdom realized that we needed something physical to remember him. If we don't have something physical, we so easily forget. So, Nothing special. We as Calvary Bible Church practice what's called open communion, so anyone who can join us in this, whether it's the first time visiting or not, and we believe that communion, as we eat it together, represents the unity that we have in the body of Christ. Jesus prayed in John 17 before he died that those who believe in him would be one, even as he and the Father are one. We're called to be unified, have nothing against ourselves and another brother and sister in Christ. So before we take communion, we actually spend some time in praying. Number one, we pray and thank God for what he's done for us. Then we pray and ask if there's any way we've lived against him that we need to make right. Number three, we ask if there's anything a brother and sister has against us or we have against a brother and sister. And if God reveals something, we pray and we promise that we'll make it right this week because we want to be unified for the sake of the gospel because a church that is not unified does not show people the gospel.
When we pass the bread, we each take a piece and we hold it until everyone's served and we take it together, symbolizing that we want to be unified. We pass the grape juice, we each take a cup, we hold it, we eat it together, symbolizing that we want to be unified. We eat and drink a promise that will make things right. As I say every month, I'm grateful for God's grace because if all of us were honest, none of us would be able to take communion because we are sinful human people. But I'm also grateful for his grace that as we live the week, he kicks us back onto the path and says, you need to make that right. You need to do this better. You need to live a life that is glorifying to me in all of your interactions, in all of your speech, in all of your thoughts. Will you just take some time and pray with me? Father, thank you for sending your son to the earth to die on the cross for our sins. Thank you for doing what we could not do, for having pity on our poor, miserable selves and calling us your own, giving us a gift that we did not have to earn. Lord, thank you in your power for coming down and being God with us that we didn't have to be alone, that we might know you and have a relationship with you. Thank you for giving us church, brothers and sisters, that we could live life together and cry and laugh, encourage and rebuke. Lord, it is such a privilege to be part of your people, to be part of your family. Thank you for that privilege. Thank you for the ability to remember you every month through this simple act Lord, I ask that this simple act, this remembrance, this celebration would not end after we drink the last cup, but it would continue all week, all month, 
that those around us would see that something is different, that we are yours beyond a shadow of a doubt. Thanks, Father. Amen. Could I ask uh, Jean? My brain's turned off. Tim, thank you. To come up. The cups in the middle are gluten-free. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. body of our Lord Jesus Christ that was broken, that we might follow him in weakness. Celebrating, let us eat it together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me.